Welcome to the Grace South Bay Church Podcast. I'm Matt Cabot, your host and elder at Grace South Bay. Each week we have a Q&A conversation with our pastors about their sermons. We talk theology and we get into the Bible. And we discuss how to live out our faith as Christians in Silicon Valley and beyond. Today we continue our conversation on our sermon series from Leviticus. In a sermon titled Feasting with God, Pastor Bob unpacks the preparations needed to feast with God. What needed to be offered to the Lord and why? What could the Israelites eat and what was forbidden? We'll explore those questions and more today as we dive into multiple sections of Leviticus. We're talking brisket, fat, and fellowshipping with the Almighty. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. So, Bob, let's begin. There's there's a lot mm-hmm. of different offerings that are mentioned in these passages. So let's sort of break these down. Um, you got a food offering, you got a vow offering, free will offering. Uh, what are the purposes of these different offerings and why so many offerings? So actually, Matt, the, the food offering is a general term um, that, that comes up in um, chapter one as well. It just means mm-hmm. an offering by fire. So that's a general term and that's what all of these, uh, these are. Hmm. Um, and, and we're calling them the, the fellowship offering in, in our Bibles. It might be translated as peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of those, there's there's three uh, subcategories, the, the thank offering, the vow offering, and the free will offering. And, um, and the thank offering seems to be uh, the most common and the oldest, and mm-hmm. that's why it's somewhat set apart in terms of the, the time period in, when, in which you have to eat it. Um, and when we look at the Psalms, it, it seems that a, a number of the Psalms have the setting of, of bringing a thank offering uh, to the temple, to the place of worship, and sort of a testimony of God delivering the psalmist from something. In fact, even Psalm 22, um, that great psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the, towards the end, it turns and says, you have saved me. Uh, and then it ends by saying, you know, I'm going to declare this to the congregation that he has done it. And so, you know, the thank offering uh, seems to be very ubiquitous uh, and very old, right? I mean, God mm-hmm. has done something for me, and so I'm bringing something, and I'm going to testify, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to feast um, and offer him thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other two are vow and free will. And, and you know, vow is is what it says. I mean, someone someone makes a vow and says, you know, if— uh, I'll do this if God will do that, or if God does this, I'll do that. You know, and and there's there's something going on there that's saying, look, I I I'm promising to do something, and once it's over, I will come and sacrifice to you and bring this offering to you. And then free will is just simply, hey, I I love God and I want to party with Him. You know, mm. it's just sort of like this, just general like I love you and I enjoy you, and it could come at any time. So it, you know these things cover a lot, um, but it, but but like I said, the thank offering seems to be uh, the most the most common and most important, and and again, what we see oftentimes in the Psalms. Yeah, so we we um, understand feasting pretty well in our church, and we celebrate. <laughs> I that. hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, but what role does feasting play in our relationship with God, and how do the offerings described in these passages constitute a feast? Yeah, you know, as I argue in the sermon, the whole point uh, is a feast, right? The, the whole point of our relationship with God is to bring us to a place of 
uh, permanent uh, joy and feasting together. Now, that doesn't mean that our whole relationship with God is a feast right now. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is you know, trouble and hardship and sin and and uh, unbelief and, and all kinds of things. So um, we, we can't only feast with God now um, in, in this life, but God is bringing us to a feast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a feast is, as we see in, in our culture and in other cultures as well, it's one of the primary ways of enjoying relationship. It's one of the primary ways of solidifying uh, covenants and agreements. It's It creates some of our best memories and experiences. And so from, you know, Genesis uh, 2 uh, through uh, Revelation 22, we mm-hmm. see feasting come up consistently that this is what God is is driving history towards, and he feasts with his people and commands his people to feast before him mm. throughout, from, from beginning to end. And this constitutes a feast because this is the only uh, sacrifice uh, commanded in Leviticus where the worshiper eats much eats any of the sacrifice, and in this case, mm. most of the sacrifice, most of the animal, is consumed by the worshiper and and their household and their guests. The priests, the priest gets something too, as we'll talk about, I think, in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, uh, the, on the altar is the the fat and and some of the intestines and liver and, and kidneys mm-hmm. um, that that is burned up as a pleasing aroma for God. So, in that sense, all parties are participating. In this food offering, this this burnt offering, this sacrifice, and so in that sense, this is this is meant to be uh, seen as a feast before God, and we see this um, th- this pattern. Right, it starts with the the atonement ascension offering, the whole burnt offering, uh, which makes atonement for the sinner. Then we have the the grain offering, which we call the tribute gift, right, which mm-hmm. is sort of uh, recommitting to the covenant, recognizing the covenant again, the obligations and the promises. And now in the, this third uh, sacrifice, we are ready for the feast. We are ready to enjoy God and to recognize his goodness uh, and, and to really uh, just party before him. And so this mm-hmm. is a feast. It's, it's pointing Israel to that. It points us to that, and we see it fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so let's talk about then the elements of this feast with, with God. And I thought, let's start, you know, talk about something for our Texas listeners. <laughs> uh, what role does brisket play in this passage? Because I yeah, think you so, actually mentioned that in your sermon. Yeah, you know, and I don't know if I actually read it, um, because it, it comes up in chapter 7, so it's interesting, in, in the beginning of the Leviticus, we have all of the offerings are described from the mostly from the worshiper's angle in chapters 1 through 6 and then and then partway through 6 and into 7 it goes back over the sacrifices again and gives more instructions for the priests mm-hmm. and in chapter 7 it says that this fellowship offering um, the the priest gets the the breast of the of the animal um, which is the brisket the, the brisket mm-hmm. part of the animal as well as the right thigh and so yes brisket brisket plays a role here in that this is this is what the what this is what the priest got mm-hmm. um, and and you know the, re, like we saw with the tribute gift I mean this is one of the primary ways that priests and their families were fed were, were through these sacrifices and so you know you're, you're you are contributing to the overall worship of God and the upkeep of his tabernacle or temple by bringing these these offerings and these gifts to him um, because the priests play a role as well. And so, yes, it was the brisket and the uh, <laughs> the right thigh that they got. 
Wonderful. Well, let's, you know, as someone who likes to, to cook barbecue and we host our barbecue series here at, at Grace South Bay. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sort of curious. I mean, this is, I don't know, this probably it's totally extra biblical, but do we know like how they were cooking the food? <laughs> were they actually seasoning the, the meat? Yeah, these are great questions that, that, you know, maybe someone has some answers or guesses for. I can only give you some very uh, brief directions. Uh, in in the Old Testament, it seems like the way that sacrifices were cooked, um, they were either uh, boiled or roasted. Mm-hmm. And I really hope for their sake they were roasting this meat. <laughs> um, you know, but you just you just never yeah. know. Uh, know. And, and, it, and in the... In the courtyard, uh, there was the big altar, right? And only the priests handled that, and and you didn't eat anything off of the altar. Um, And so my assumption is that, you know, what you did is you you brought the animal, you slaughtered it, you gave the priests share, you gave God share, and then you took the rest back somewhere else outside of the tabernacle courts and precincts, um, and, and there you prepared the meat and feasted with your household and guests, mm. um, so you know, so there there could have been you know sort of barbecue pits. Um, you know, we we know that the way worship worked in many cultures is that you know you had lots of the the the, the, the temple district was you know where the restaurants were. I mean, this is where mm. you did public eating, uh, and so there would have been cooking facilities as well. But again, in terms of the mode, the the method of of cooking, we see uh, boiling and roasting of meat as the, the most common ways. In terms of seasoning, remember, we already read that every offering has to come with the salt of the covenant. Every mm-hmm. offering has to be salted, and so uh, you know, we know that salt was important, and I'm sure that the, the meat was salted. Um, and in, in the Passover meal, we know that you know it was supposed to be prepared, the lamb was supposed to be prepared with bitter herbs, mm-hmm. um, you know, just to kind of remind Israel of the, the bitter slavery. So, I mean, if there's bitter herbs, there's probably good herbs and seasoning as well, you know? So yeah, maybe, I, maybe, maybe cumin too, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there's yeah. mint and dill and cumin, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, I right, mean, right. so I think that they probably <clears throat> had some, you know, good rubs, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, some of the, some of, you know, some people did, some people didn't, just like in yeah. our day, right? Some people right. like... Uh, well done, overcooked, terrible meat, and right. uh, some people have you know other other tastes and flavors, and I think that's probably what was happening for them as well. Well, now you get my my uh, marketing juices flowing here. I'm thinking about a line of barbecue rubs from the Middle East. We can <laughs> figure this whole thing out. All right, well, let's talk about the the feeling of this feast. I mean, since it was a feast with God, was the occasion more somber and serious? I mean, would it have been sacrilegious for guys to be grilling and drinking and cracking jokes? I mean, was there music and dancing? Yeah, I mean, that's a great, that's a great question. And, and um, like I said earlier, I think in one of the other podcasts, it's, it's interesting how little information Leviticus gives us, right? It, it, it really gives us uh, the basics, and, and we have to connect some of the dots and, and Certainly, from looking at uh, other things we know about Israel's worship later on in their history, uh, particularly around the temple, um, uh, we know that there is music and dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, th- this was you know God-centered music and dancing. This, this wasn't you know Almond Brothers. Um, so, so there, there there was purpose and intentionality around right. the celebration. Uh, 
grilling, drinking, cracking jokes, probably not in mm. the courtyard, you know, where the animal's being slaughtered and the priests are working hard and there's blood being splashed on the altar and, you know, the fat is being burned. Um, but we know that when the animal, the rest of the animal is taken back for the worshiper to consume, um, we know that it was meant to be a, a joyous uh, mm. festive occasion. And, and we read a little bit more about that in places like Deuteronomy. And there's actually a, uh, one or two paragraphs I can read from you. One is from Deuteronomy 12, remember, where Moses is addressing Israel, what their life should look like when they come into the promised land. And, and mm. one of the things Moses says here is that, you know, look, when God's, the Lord your God is going to choose a place for you to worship, to make his name dwell there, he says. And there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Mm. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You mm. and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Then later on in Deuteronomy 14, God is talking about the tithe. Um, and he says, you know, and, and you got to bring the tithe to, to the place where he's going to choose, which will eventually be Jerusalem. And he says, if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, um, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind mm. up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen wow. or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household, and you shall not mm. neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Notice that in both passages, the emphasis on the Levite uh, who has no land, right? The, mm. the whole Levitical tribe, uh, their their portion was the Lord, and they were to be, you know, temple workers, tabernacle workers, that kind of thing. Don't forget the Levite. Bring him with you mm -hmm. uh, so that he can celebrate as well. But there's this emphasis here on rejoicing before the Lord, and even this, uh, you know, encouragement to, hey, buy wine or strong yeah. drink, and strong drink is probably beer. Uh, right. they, they didn't have bourbon, you know, or whiskey whiskey, gin, right. that kind of thing. That's beer. Wine or mm -hmm. beer, you know, eat and drink and celebrate before me. So, yeah, I mean, I, I in in those scenarios, not in the not in the, you know, temple court or the tabernacle court, but as you are going back and you are eating, you're preparing this meat and you're eating it, absolutely. It's meant to be uh, a joyous occasion celebrating mm. God's goodness and bounty mm. and blessing and he commands that you rejoice before him, right? That it's mm. not somber. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think that's that's an encouragement for us. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's a good place for us to ask a question that was submitted uh, to us by uh, a listener who asked Ooh. this question. I know how about this. <laughs> uh, so this listener asks, in many ways, the Puritans are our spiritual forebears. Uh, they supposedly believe that if anything is enjoyable, it must be wrong. Uh, that seems quite opposite to what the Bible says about feasting, as Bob, you discussed in your sermon. Were the Puritans really so wrong about this, or did they not actually believe that and just have a bad rap? That's a that's a good question. Of course, we know who it's coming from, and and uh, obviously there there would be books written about this in terms of the Puritans and and where they're coming from, and also um, to what degree are they our 
spiritual mm. forebears. And yes. you know, I, I think there is some truth in in uh, in that characterization um, that the Puritans were suspicious of excess, mm-hmm. and and that that's partly uh, their their faith and and their theology, but it's also partly the culture they're coming out of, uh, where they were coming from in England, and what they were rejecting. Right, they were rejecting a high Anglicanism um, that you know these fairly immoral kings, James the First and Charles the First, were trying to Catholicize hmm. um, and sort of giving all the trappings of royal absolutism. And so, you know, Puritanism was saying, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna stick with the basics uh, and the good stuff of the gospel, and uh, and we're gonna shun uh, sort of this ostentatious Christianity that some of these uh, some of our leaders are trying to foist on us. So, yeah. in that sense, it, 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 it you know, it's not just purely a theological. Uh, position. It, it's also a, a, a cultural position and, and something um, for their time that made sense to them. But they are definitely suspicious of excess. I mean, the Puritans mm. are the the non middle class, upper middle class Americans, where it's like you know you're going to save, you're going you know your your nuclear family, you're going to have a house, you're going to have a decent living, um, but be but be careful not to get too much because getting yeah. too much will corrupt you, and certainly don't be poor because being poor sucks too. Mm. Um, so this is where we get a lot of our American middle class stuff. But on the other hand, you know, we 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 have uh, nowadays this idea of Christian hedonism, right? That's espoused mm-hmm. by John Piper and others, where you know you you can revel in God's goodness and God's love, and you should be rejoicing before God. And a lot of that comes from the Puritans. Um, that you know, you, you, when you read the Puritans, they are just enraptured by God and captivated by Jesus' beauty. I mean, they sound like mystics oftentimes in mm. terms of how much joy uh, they are getting from God and where they are seeing God show up uh, everywhere in their lives. And and there's a there's a real beauty to that. Um, mm-hmm. But it, but it's certainly uh, theologically informed um, mm-hmm. and not so much about specifically sort of this rejoicing, uh, feasting. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, the Puritans, uh, they were a little, uh, they were a little bit navel gazing, um, mm-hmm. a little bit obsessed with inward struggles, maybe too mm-hmm. much. And mm-hmm. so, you know, on the one hand, they, they, um, are perhaps thinking too hard about all of their failures and, and all the ways that they mess up. Um, but on the other hand, when when you do that and you get a taste of God's goodness and grace, man, it's amazing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they, they, they have a, a, a way of being uh, joyful and a way of enjoying God, um, but probably not so much in this what we are talking about here in terms of just like, you know, strong drink and great meat and a party. Mm. That sounded too medieval and too Catholic to them. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so this, it's a good place to to bring up the idea too that you brought up in your sermon. There is such a thing as distorted feasting. Yeah. So so what is that and what happens when we feast that way? Yeah, you know, it, it, it can be... One one way of thinking about it here is, uh, or two two specific ways is one is it's non relational, right? So mm-hmm. so feasting is meant to be about bringing people together and and specifically uh, bringing God's people 
to God um, and, and, and experiencing some, some kind of union and fellowship with God. And so, um, you know, uh, one example of distorted feasting is, you know, the person getting a pint of ice cream by themselves and watching Netflix and just downing all the ice cream, right? Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's distorted feasting. Um, mm. because, you know, it, you're, you're isolated. Um, this, this is simply about, um, you know, fulfilling an appetite, um, and it has nothing to do with sort of really, you know, connecting you with anyone else. Um, and, and it's also the, the, the second point is sort of this overconsumption, this gluttony, mm. right? And distorted feasting, um, is, <clears throat> is gluttonous in the sense that, you know, you're just gonna, you're gonna keep on gorging yourself, past the point of, you know, what is reasonable, what is healthy, what is good for you. Um, now, there, there, particularly in, in earlier times when there was just too much food at harvest and it wasn't going to be preserved um, and there were going to be days of hunger ahead, you know, like mm. people did overconsume and that just had to do with sort of just the calendar and, and mm-hmm. the agricultural year and the agricultural cycle. Um, but nowadays for us, you know, like we don't have to overconsume to you know, pack on the pounds for the lean months ahead, right? And so overconsumption is a way of, of distorted feasting where it just – the focus is on the food and drink, not mm-hmm. on the company and not on the goodness of God. Um, you know, ultimately, distorted feasting is we are not feasting in faith, right? Everything mm. we do should be done in faith, in the name of Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. And when you are doing it in faith, when you are feasting in the name of Jesus, right, you are connecting yourself to God. Hopefully, you are connecting yourself to other people, whether Christian or non-Christian. And when you're doing it in the name of Jesus, you're not doing it simply just to kind of fill your mouth, you know, and yeah, and, and just yeah. stuff yourself uh, to excess. But you know, it can be anything. It's not just food, right? I, I mentioned mm-hmm. it's. It can be, uh, you know, streaming services. It can be. Uh, sex, you know, it, mm-hmm. it can be work, it can be shopping, it can be news. I mean, we we all know what it's like just to kind of like get in this zone and we just kind of keep consuming something way past the point of what is necessary mm-hmm. or healthy or good for us, right? And and what it really does is it erodes relationships. And like I said, it, it actually erodes our humanity because mm-hmm. it's isolating, so anyway, we, we, you know, clearly in America, we have this problem with distorted feasting, with this non-relational overconsumption and hearing about, you know, this, this God who loves us and wants to feast with us, I think is a, is a great correction and antidote mm-hmm. to that. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. yes, feasting is good. Right, but what is feasting for? Feasting is for connection. Feasting is for uh, celebrating blessing. Feasting is for uh, underlining covenants and agreements. Right, so it's it's there, there's a purpose to feasting simply beyond I have an appetite. Yeah, well, let's talk about um, that picture then, because so if that's if this if this is distorted feasting, let's look at what godly feasting would look mm. like, and mm-hmm. the ultimate picture of that seems to be. Uh, come out of the, the, the book of Revelation, which you're doing your Bible study in right now. I'm going to keep on yep. plugging that Bible yeah, study. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. What is it, and why should we be looking forward to it? Yeah, what's what's fascinating is that um, in Revelation 19, as we are you know be, beginning to see the the final battle, Armageddon, and the the throwing the the beast and and the false prophet. 
uh, into the into the pit and the lake of fire and and then later the dragon as well um, in 20 w- that's all sort of prefaced by saying come the angel says to John come and let me show you the the wedding the wedding supper of the lamb hmm. right and so the the wedding supper the wedding feast right is this you know ultimate victory of good over evil um, and it is the gathering in of of God's people and the glory of the nations into the this this new Jerusalem right this heavenly Jerusalem hmm. comes down from heaven to earth right so we have this physical creation where now the dwelling of God is with man spiritual and material are are put back together right spirit and body are united perfectly uh, and and this is a scene where you know we have people from every tongue tribe nation are are together worshiping God and it's a it's a wedding supper of the lamb because it is the union of God's people with God's son Jesus right i mean hmm. so God the Father makes creation uh, to to present a gift to His Son, Jesus. Right, and so that's what's happening here. This is the this this ultimate union between God's people and Jesus. And there, right, we have the tree of life, and 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 it, it, it's its fruit is for the healing of the nations. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's it's a feast. It's it's a party. It's a celebration. Every tear wiped from our eyes. No more suffering, sorrow, sickness, pain, or death, right? And there, there is just joy. And mm-hmm. you don't even need light. You don't even need the sun because God is there in the center mm-hmm. of things. And there's no mm-hmm. temple because God is there in the center of things. There is direct connection with God. And and this is what it will be like forever, right? This mm-hmm. this joy and celebration and and real rest from mm. suffering and yeah. sorrow and hardship. Now, I think there'll be, you know, there'll be ongoing work and exploration and continuing on God's creative activity, you know, so I, I don't think it's just, you know, we're, we're harps on clouds. Right. Um, but there is this ultimate sense, and this is, you know, pictured throughout Scripture, right? We see it in Isaiah over and over again, this, this oh, yeah. idea of, you know, the... the uh, uh, a feast of well-aged wine and rich marrow, right? Yes, we see exactly. this, but but then the lion will lay down with the lamb, right? So that you know, there there's this healing between cre- healing within creation, healing between man and creation, man and God, man and man, right? So there is just this ultimate deep, rich shalom, mm. and all of that is described as a feast, right? Yeah, and yeah. and and we think about maybe, like I said, our happiest times oftentimes are feasts. Wedding receptions are amazing times, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's there's something beautiful happening. A family, a new family is being made, and people are celebrating the goodness and the blessing that they've experienced, and new people are meeting each other, and there's dancing, and there's food, and there's laughter, right? That's what God wants us to understand is is where he's taking us, where, where history mm-hmm. is going, mm-hmm. and that's what we see at the end of Revelation. And I'll tell you, that's a, such an amazing, hopeful picture we can hold on to in the middle of all the, the hard stuff. Right? I think so. Okay, well, let's let's unpack some of the uh, the details in this passage. And we'll begin with fat. Mm, How mm-hmm. was fat important to the ancient Israelites? You know, we, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that fat was nutritionally incredibly important, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in, in any society that, you know, struggled with uh, subsistence, which Israel did. Um, you needed you needed every last calorie, uh, and so uh, giving God the fat 
um, a, a particular kind of fat, uh, the the suet and the fat around the the, the kidneys and intestines and liver, mm-hmm. um, as well as a fatty tail, which we can talk about in a second. But um, giving God that fat was costly, um, and and you know we, we should assume that also <laughs> you know fat makes things taste better. Like we know that, right? <laughs> you you cook things in fat, right? Yeah, and, right. And and oftentimes fat is the the most tasty part of of a meal. So, mm. you know, it's certainly sacrificial uh, mm. for Israel to uh, give God this fat um, in, in terms of taste, in terms of nutrition. Um, however, you know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't every little piece of fat on, on the animal. It's just this particular fat, the suet, and then the fatty tail of the, the goats and the sheep. It's interesting. They, they mm. have different goats and sheep, over there, and and their tails can get really fatty. And in fact, after the sermon, I spoke with someone who had spent a lot of time in Central Asia as a missionary kid, and she said, "You know, that's still a delicacy over there. You know, really? you can you can have uh, these tails that can be forty pounds of fat. Wow! And uh, you know, you you cook it up, and it's it's a delicacy in the culture. And I think you know many of us might find it disgusting, <laughs> but you know." It was it was important and and yeah, yeah those so so the fatty tail and and the fat around the kidneys was God's um, mm. but you know it wasn't it's important to rec- you know when it says all fat is the Lord's it means that it doesn't mean what you know my my ribeye fat you know I I love ribeyes and yes. and I love ribeyes for the the fat um, and well and what for- is that called. Well, I went to the butcher one time. I looked for a particular cut of ribeyes because ribeyes look different, and there's a particular cut where it's just the loin and the cap, and in between there's this really awesome piece of fat that I call the cube rib angle of joy yes. because sometimes it's a cube, mm. sometimes it's a ribbon, sometimes it's a rectangle, and uh, and I want the, the largest fatty uh, piece, and I asked the butcher, I said, you know, this fat, I like this fat, what is it called? And she said, fat. So <laughs> I, there's, there is no name for it, that's what I call it, and, and the good news, Matt, is that you didn't have to give this up. Um, it's uh, just the good. fat around the kidneys and, and the liver and the fatty tail. However, I would also say, um, you know, they didn't have corn, right? There was there were no corn-fed mm. cows, mm-hmm. and so you know, th- th- these these were not marbled steaks. Let's let's remember these were they were not massaging the cows. <laughs> they were not massa- to, they were not yeah. massaging. <laughs> uh, but it, but anyway, it, it, it was costly uh, to do this fat, but it wasn't every last piece of fat on the animal. Okay. All right. So that's fat. Let's talk about some organs. Why were certain organs dedicated to God? Yeah. So um, particularly the, the liver um, and, and intestines, these were—we have a hunch. The hunch is that we know that uh, cultures around them, even as far as Rome— um, used uh, the, um, the, the internal organs, particularly liver and intestines, for divination. You mm. know, you, you sacrifice an animal, you, you pour out its guts onto a table, and, uh, and the way they pour out tells you something uh, about what's going to happen or what you should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we think that this is God just saying, give that to me, burn it up, you're not going to use it that way. You know, like that's not... I'm, I'm gonna just I'm gonna take that literally off the table so that mm. you're not gonna do that, um, and that's 
you know, that, that's, that's important, right? This is God saying, look, you're not going to use magic. You're not going to use divination. There's not going to be any other, you know, spiritual power source than me. And, mm. and that's vital for Israel to understand that. And so we think that that's, uh, this is one of the ways that God is communicating that. So I want to circle back to something you said in the beginning of the podcast. You said that all of these offerings and provisions were about fellowshipping with God. How so? Well, again, you know, there's there's all three parties are partaking here, God on the altar, the priest, and the worshiper. But, you know, these things are done um, in response to what God has done, right? This thank, this vow offering, fellowship offering, right? This is this is relational. Um, th- this is this is about connecting with God, and you're doing it in a particular place, in mm. a particular way, um, in a particular state. You have to be ritually clean, and everyone who's partaking has to be ritually clean. You have to eat it in a certain amount of time, right? So, so you're you're being intentional here. That this is not just a good meal. This mm-hmm. is about connecting with and fellowshipping with God. And that's why we see some of these regulations and prohibitions, um, mm. because it's this is meant to be specifically intentionally about God. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what about the, um, the prohibition about blood? What was that about? Yeah, so, you know, we see this throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, right, where at the Jerusalem Council, they, they continue to prohibit the consumption of animal blood. And over and over again, we're told, well, you know, the, the life is in the blood. Um, and, and that life, the, the, the idea is that that life belongs to God. God gave that life. It is God's. So give it back to God if you're killing this animal. Um, and God also says in, in Leviticus 17 that he's appointed the animal's blood for our atonement, for Israel's atonement. Mm-hmm. So that's why you don't consume it. This, this, this is life for life. And so this animal is giving its life for you, and so you use it for atonement. Uh, and, but, you know, what we see later on, particularly in the New Testament, is that in, in drinking blood and drinking Christ's blood, right, that is mm-hmm. a way of partaking of Jesus. It's a way of union with Jesus. And we see this throughout other cultures. When you, when you consume an animal's blood, right, there is this sense of union with that life force. Mm-hmm. And so God is saying, no, 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 you're not going to be, you're not going to commune with an animal here. You're going to commune with me. Give me the blood Pour the blood on the altar. You know when there's a sin, you're gonna you're gonna sprinkle it uh, before the curtain and and on the altar in the holy place, right? You're gonna use the blood, but you're not gonna consume the blood, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't want union union with the animal. Mm-hmm. And then he sends his son uh, to offer himself up as a sacrifice, and he says, "This is the blood you are to drink." The blood mm. of my son, right, sacramentally represented uh, in the wine, and you can, you're going to consume his body, sacramentally represented by the bread. And so, mm-hmm. you're, there's this, you know, don't consume the blood yet because the real, true sacrifice has not yet come. That sacrifice mm-hmm. is Jesus, and that's what we celebrate every Sunday with communion. Absolutely, and that's why um, you know we we do our worship service like these first three. Uh, sacrifices, right? We we confess our sins. We we recognize the atonement that we have in Jesus. We recommit ourselves. We rededicate ourselves uh, to God's covenant love and promises and the and the obligations that He puts upon us. Right? We feed on His Word and then we feed on His Son. We feast at communion. Right? So everything mm-hmm. is moving towards 
this feast where we are partaking of Jesus, body and blood, sacramentally through uh, the bread and wine, right? The whole mm-hmm. point of the worship service is, the, the climax at least, is this feast of communion. Mm-hmm. Okay, another, uh, another question from a listener. Uh, and by the way, people can submit questions to us, so this is, yes. this is good. It says this, uh, Bob, you said you couldn't invite just anybody to your feast because they had to have been preparing to not be unclean and so forth. But one of Jesus's parables is, is exactly about the host, God, compelling people to come from the highways and the hedges straight into his feast. Is that a helpful contrast or parallel? Uh, you know, I think it's it's in some sense a contrast. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's in many ways it's a chilling contrast because the 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 actual point of the parable is that the original invited guests refuse to come, uh, mm. and they and they refuse for lame reasons. Yeah, and Jesus is saying that's Israel today, right? Israel is refusing to come to the feast. God has invited them, and they're making excuses not to come. Mm-hmm. So instead, God's going to reject the originally invited guests, and he's going to throw the doors open to the unworthy and the unwashed, and they will come, and his mm-hmm. house will be full, right? Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles, yeah. and he's talking about the people on the margins uh, of Israelite society, right? And he says, no one who's refused will be able to come in, right? They're, they're, they're done. They don't get a seat at the table, right? So this is very chilling. It's like, it, it's an interesting... Um, conclusion to the Levitical system that mm-hmm. that Israel now that the now that God is here and the, the Messiah is here, Israel's refusing to come to Him, and Israel's refusing the feast. Right, so it, it mm. it's the end of the Levitical system. There's a there's a new feast coming, and there's a new invitation um, because Israel has rejected it. Mm-hmm. And you know we do this in communion, right? I mean, we disinvite people in the kindest way possible, but we disinvite people to the feast, right? We say, like, if you have not been washed in baptism and and you haven't made a credible confession of faith in Jesus, do not feast with us, right? So so we still carry on this idea of you actually do need to, you need to know who you're feasting with and why you're feasting. And in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, Paul warns them, right? He said, these people were feasting unworthily at communion. Some were getting sick, some were even dying because of it. They were scorning the sacrament. And so, you know, I, I think that this that that prohibition carries on to our day, right? Mm-hmm. That that um, you know, people do need to know that what they're coming to, what the feast is for. Um, they do need to have been prepared in some way, not in the way that Leviticus says they need to be prepared in terms of ritually clean, unless you want to make the argument that baptism makes you ritually clean, whatever. Mm. You can do that. Um, but there, but but certainly, um, we are not just opening up the communion table to anyone and everyone and saying, "Sure, yeah, partake of Jesus." You know, like no matter mm-hmm. what, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you're saying, no matter your faith stance, um, no matter what if you've been marked in Him in baptism. You know, so mm-hmm. so in that sense, I think they're they're you know we are we are paralleling what Leviticus is saying. And that's a really good point because some people would say, "Well, well, you're not you're being ex- exclusive or you're being mean about this. Why, right. you know, why fence the yep. communion table, right?" Yep. Yeah. All right. So, how do we know that we have a feasting Father in heaven? You know, I if you if you take the Bible as God's word, 
then I, I don't know how you conclude any differently, mm-hmm. uh, or at least you know we, we can make a great argument that the Bible presents God as a feasting God, a, a God um, you know looking for rich, deep, rejoicing fellowship with us. You know, from from Genesis one through Revelation twenty two, that there there this the Bible presents a feasting God, a feasting Father. Um, but you know, a, a lot of us have still have a hard time understanding that, and and so you know, it, how do we know? Like, how do we come to know? Yeah. That's a different thing, right? I mean, taking the Bible seriously is important, and 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 putting ourselves under it, and and submitting to it, and saying, okay, I guess we have a feasting father. But it doesn't feel that way for a lot of people, right? Right. Um, depending on even depending on what their earthly fathers were like, right? And if your yeah, earthly father sure. wasn't a feasting father and didn't it didn't seem to enjoy you much or abandon mm-hmm. you or whatever. Um, it's harder to to know that our heavenly Father is a feasting Father. Mm-hmm. Um, if we are weighed down by sin, um, it's it's hard to know that we have a, a Father who wants to feast with us. Um, and that's why maybe the best way we come to know this is that we are a part of a feasting community, right? We mm-hmm. we we are a part of a, a church that actually does recognize this and takes this seriously and is intentional about it. I mean, we know Jesus came eating and drinking and feasting with sinners because of God's mercy, right? Because now is the time to open up the doors and bring people into God's house, and he gets to be the one who opens the door and brings them in, right? So Mm -hmm. he came feasting with sinners, and so we know that, you know, he's he he will feast with us, right? If if we come to him, he will feast with us, and he's preparing us uh, to come before the Father. Uh, And and that could be hard for any one of us to truly know that or believe that in any particular moment. We need to Mm -hmm. be a part of a community that recognizes that. That, that God is a feasting God, and Jesus came eating and drinking, uh, and, and he was celebrating the ingathering of sinners. Who are, mm. that's, that's us. He's celebrating the ingathering of, of enemies and those who are far off. That's us. And so we need to learn, we can learn that way by being in a community that recognizes that and, and practices that. Last question, and it goes to just what you were talking about. Um, how do we practice heaven by feasting. Yeah, yeah, just kind of following up on that, right? And 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 the way I was talking about in the sermon is particularly we are doing that when we're doing it with others who are different from us. You know, and we mm-hmm. we think about uh our feasts, um and most feasts, right? We we only want people there we like. You know, uh, <laughs> o- over the last uh 6 years or so, right? There's been so many articles and things discussed about, you know, like Thanksgiving and Christmas with family where you have uh political differences, right? Mm, right. You know, the the pro-Trump and anti-Trump people and and you know, invariably in most families you're going to have, you know, a, a few on one side or the other. People who and, like fat, people who don't like fat. <laughs> right. you know, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it, it, feasts oftentimes you know are self-selecting and and it's like we only want to be with the people who are like us and reflect our values and that kind of thing and so one way that we practice heaven is by feasting with people who you know we might not have a whole lot in common with other than Jesus right and mm-hmm. we are we are connected together and united together by Jesus, and this is a stronger bond than anything else. It's stronger than gender. It's stronger than family. It's stronger than ethnicity. It's stronger than politics. It's stronger than class and education. Mm. Right? Jesus is the bond that that holds us together, and that will be holding everyone together in heaven. This is this is where we're going, uh, and so when we 
feast with, with, with that in mind, when we feast with people who are different from us, when we feast with people who we love in Jesus for no other reason than we love in Jesus, then we are imaging heaven, right? We, we are practicing uh, the heavenly feast that way. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's, this is something that we have to be intentional about um, as believers and as mm-hmm. as a church. Like, what does it look like to feast uh, intentionally with people uh, who we might not otherwise choose? Uh, we, we talk about this in community, with community group training, you know, and we use the hot tub analogy mm-hmm. that um, you never want to be in a hot tub with strangers, right? I mean, like, yeah, you yeah. only want, you only want your <laughs> friends in the hot tub with you, right? Yeah. And, and it's the same thing with feasting. But if we do that as a church, you know, if we have the hot tub mentality as a church and we only gather people who are just like us, the world looks at that and, and all they see is, a, is, a, is an affinity group, you know, a, a club. Um, mm. These are people gathering together who, you know, have all these similar interests and demographically they fit. But when we are a church that is act, actively trying to feast with uh, people who are, who are different – uh, than the majority, and we're trying to gather together a, uh, a diverse community and feast together in the name of Jesus, mm-hmm. right? That's when people see something different, because no one feasts like that, mm-hmm. right? Jesus enables us to feast with people who are far different from us, even who are former enemies. You think about the disciples, right, and how mm-hmm. Matthew was probably defrauding some of those yeah. guys, yeah. right? Um, that's what Jesus can do. And so when we feast that way, in Jesus' name, with Jesus' people, um, we are practicing heaven, and we are Mm. showing the world what heaven is going to be like. And I think that it's a compelling image. So one of my highest compliments that I have given to you numerous times after your sermons is that, Bob, that was a ribeye sermon. It was meaty, (laughs) full of substance, and 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 this was literally a a ribeye sermon. So thank you. It was just a really good one. The title of Bob's sermon is Feasting with God. It's part of our sermon series in Leviticus. You can find that sermon in all our sermons and this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. We hope these conversations are helping you develop a closer relationship with Jesus. If you have questions about the Christian faith or just need someone to talk to, we've got pastors, elders, youth leaders, and a women's care team ready to help. We're just an email or a phone call away. If you have a prayer request, you can also go directly to our website at gracesouthbay.com and submit your requests using the prayer button at the top of the website. And if you're new to Grace South Bay, we would encourage you to fill out the Connect card and one of our pastors will reach out to you. And of course, if you are in the San Jose area, we would love to have you join us for Sunday morning worship. We meet at 9 a.m. at Crossroads Bible Church in San Jose. We'll be back next week with another episode of the GSB podcast. So stay tuned, stay connected, and be encouraged knowing that nothing can separate you from God's love. We look forward to our next time together. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for listening.